today on Ag News Daily. If the dog trains the stock fairly, that when the dog puts pressure on, the stock moves away. And if the dog the stock moves away, the dog releases that pressure. Then the stock learn to trust that dog that he's not a predator, that he's trustworthy. He's not going to get after them or punish them unless they do something that they're not supposed to do. So they they learn to trust the dog. Good morning, listeners. Tanner Winterhoff here, virtually alongside Delaney Howell for an Ag News Daily episode here on a Wednesday. Beautiful Wednesday morning. How's Delaney doing? I'm good, Tanner. Although, yeah, I thought last night we might have another derecho coming at us. Well, there were certain parts of the country that got one, or at least is claimed to have received one. There's uh, portions of southeastern South Dakota, northwestern Iowa, that certainly had some damage to buildings, grain bins, farm sites, crops laying flat. Uh, but you're right. We got lucky here in central Iowa. By the time it got here, it was just just a little bit of wind. Uh, we had to pull the patio furniture in, but uh, all in all here, maybe some leaning corn, but not too bad. No, certainly not compared to, like you said there, some of those other states like uh, the Dakotas that definitely did get more derecho-like storms. But Tanner, you know, speaking of weather, we're starting to get some mixed forecasts here for the Corn Belt because a lot of folks are still saying we're in a La Nina hot and dry condition, whereas other folks, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is starting to suggest that the trend is now pointing to a wetter July for the Corn Belt. So we're definitely getting some mixed messaging here. Huh. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I might have to look into those because I'm always curious to see what people think. And then uh, I always say that I will pay attention and then go back to feel like which one was the most right. Uh, and I never do because, you know, you want to find a trusted source, those that predict quite well for you. And, and while you're reading that, I did pull up um, some reports on that derecho-like storm. So it is qualified as a derecho. So in order to do that, it has to be more than 400 miles long. And this storm extended over 500 miles. So hit the first, uh, the first item. And then it is supposed to also have wind, sustained winds more than 60 miles per hour. And it sounds like in most areas uh, that did happen, it was not that way for the full 400 miles sounds like the fastest wind gusts over 90 miles per hour uh, were in Howard, South Dakota, reported up to 99 miles per hour. Looks like it brought some hail to Delaney. The largest hailstone fell near uh, Agata, Nebraska, which was nearly the size of a grapefruit. So it uh, does look like we had some severe damage for some of the listeners in our market. And uh, unfortunately, we know how that feels as we experience that here in 2020. Yes. And tonight, isn't isn't the sky turning orange a sign of hail, Tanner? Yes. And because, it was lit up. Yeah, but we never got any hail to my knowledge. So I guess consider ourselves lucky there. Yeah, might be one of those old wives tales. But yes, I would say the amount of pictures out there on Instagram and Twitter last night from before the storm and after uh, certainly leads to the temperament of the weather we usually have here in Iowa. No doubt, Tanner. But actually, speaking of weather, that's a good segue here into discussing yesterday's crop progress and condition reports. And as you could guess, we saw a drop in crop conditions for this past week, 
Due to hot and dry weather, corn conditions dropped three percentage points now at 64% rated good to excellent, with the most notable drops in Illinois, which fell about five points, and Iowa fell three points. We also saw some drops in Nebraska and Kentucky. They are at 31 and 32% in good to excellent condition. Now on the soybean side of things, 63% of soybeans were rated in good to excellent condition, down two percentage points from the previous week, with again notable drops in Iowa, Illinois, and Nebraska, Tanner. Yeah, and uh, I always feel like the year is disappearing away from me, but the crop development report stated that the 7% of the corn was silking, so I it always catches me off guard when you start to hear of corn silking when you look at your backyard and you don't see that. But DTN put out uh, a survey to a lot of their audience and a couple of territories came back with an overwhelming consensus. Southwest Iowa said they were desperate for some rain. The last significant rain was early June, which brought hail. Uh, so Southwestern Iowa probably got some rain this last weekend here over the 4th, which was much needed. Southwestern Minnesota said that they were dry as well, starting to take its toll on the crops visually, uh, is what one of their uh, audience members had said. Indiana needs rain too. Muck is cracking. Pivots are running hard. We've already watered twice in June. Some people have ran their pivots four times. So um, interesting, again, on the weather topic there to see how this crop is going to shake out. But another one that I saw, Delaney, is that uh, a billion pounds of California almonds are stranded at ports due to trade woes. So an article here coming from producer David Fippen. Uh, he is stating here that agricultural economists, as well as he and his fellow uh, farmers in the industry, are on the verge of losing its premier portion of the global market. Even though COVID-19 caused some strains in 2020, now they are seeing containers backed up with their goods waiting at port, including these large crops of almonds. So uh, he's stating that it's all about money and those that have more money are getting their goods shipped. And unfortunately, apparently the almond industry is falling far behind. So statistically, over 7,000 California farms produce 82% of the world's almonds, but they don't get paid. Delaney at the farm until those products arrive at their end market. And most of those markets are in the European Union, China, India, and the United Arab Emirates. Well, another reason that we could see some issues there, Tanner, is because the West Coast port labor contract expired on Friday. And to my knowledge, I'm not sure if it has been extended. So this contract covers ports on the West Coast, specifically, I believe, L.A. Uh, a couple of the big California ports are covered under this West Coast port labor contract, and it covers more than 22,000 workers. On Friday, it expired, and it has a lot of shippers concerned that there will be a labor disruption in some of these West West Coast ports, so much so that shippers are starting to uh, route against or route elsewhere and not use any West West Coast ports. That's a mouthful for me today, apparently, (laughs) Um, because they're worried that 
this next round of contracts will not be accepted by the labor union because as we've seen, lots of different labor unions have been rejecting kind of the initial contract and have been trying to fight for better worker rights, better worker benefits, safety, et cetera. And as far as I know, we don't have anything in place as of yet, but definitely a story to watch because if we do not see an extension of that port worker contract, we could see 22,000, up to 22,000 workers go on strike in the port areas, Tanner. And when we talked to the representative of the rail industry, uh, not that he passed blame, but he certainly brought it to our attention that they are a midstream transporter. So if you can't get things in a port or out of a port, our rail system really can't run efficiently either. And we've talked about the rail system contract negotiations currently. They are not striking, but another part of our transportation corridor and overall global market access uh, could be on the verge of having some issues. We've even talked about a little bit, haven't hit a lot, Delaney, on flight delays, how many flights are being canceled. Mm -hmm due to the pilot shortage uh, and the restrictions in that area. But let's look over at Sri Lanka. I don't know if our listeners are going to remember about six weeks ago, I reported on how they were uh, not doing well financially. Well, Sri Lanka missed that bond payment, as we stated, uh, which is an indication, again, that they are facing the worst financial crisis in decades. Their inflation is now nearly 55%. In June, on Sunday, Sri Lanka's energy minister said that the country had less than one day of fuel left. There's also an an acute shortage on foreign capital holdings in the country. Sri Lankan Airlines, the largest airline in the country, skipped their payment on its bonds attributed to the ongoing economic poor situation. Sri Lankan is over 99% owned by the government. And it is imposed a debt moratorium to conserve cash. So the government is definitely trying to monitor the situation. But over the weekend, as fuel supplies dried up, the local news there is reporting that uh, an internal Sri Lankan government memo is saying that the airline ran out of fuel on top of the government running out of fuel, which is why a lot of flights were canceled throughout July and out into indefinitely into the future until the Sri Lankan government can find credit and can import fuel. So a big issue over there in that small country of Sri Lanka. So does that mean that there will not be flights in and out of Sri Lanka? Well, if you fly in, you need enough fuel to get back out because you can't get any while you're there. Hmm. Well, guess you'll be stuck there if you go. Well, and for some people that might be a dream come true. I suppose that is probably accurate, Tanner. I don't think that would be my dream come true, but to each their own. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a good segue, so I'm just going to dive into my next piece of news here, Tanner. But uh, USDA Secretary Vilsack has announced that agricultural producers should have started receiving more than the $4 billion to the emergency relief program that was starting to be distributed or should have started to be distributed, I should say, through 2021. But it was some of those crop insurance money, disaster aid money that more than 67 percent 
of the $6 billion projected was to be paid through phase one. And this was for things like drought, wildfires, hurricanes, etc. And um, this was signed into law in 2021 by President Biden. And we're just now starting to see some of that aid dollars distributed here. But all producers who received that ERP phase one payment are also required to purchase crop insurance, which I thought was an interesting side note there that I don't think a lot of people were aware of. Yeah, I don't think that made headlines. That's the first time that it was brought to my attention. And I feel like I've read a lot of articles around these disaster payments. Yes, I have as well. So, you know, I'm sure people will have their conspiracy theories thinking that's the government wanting to track their acres. Well, of course, I think it's probably more financially. Uh, One could be suspect that the reason it didn't get paid out in phase one was there was no budget backing it. And they can pull from uh, that crop insurance fund due to their statistical algorithms on cost of insurance and revenues from the premiums to help fund this program. So another one for us to continue to watch. And I appreciate your help in assisting me with my last segue with a connection to the USDA. So court denies a South Dakota farmer any appeal, any future appeals in a wetlands case. So South Dakota judge sides with USDA that the farmer challenging the wetland determination of 2011 on a puddle, I'm using air quotes, do any of people could see me, of a puddle less than an acre on his field. So federal court decided on July 1st that the lawsuit brought by farmer Allen Arlen Foster from a ruling from 2011 that a 0.8 acre tract of land on his farm in South Dakota was deemed as a wetland. He was arguing that this was an artificial wet area and it was caused by snow melt from a large grove of trees said that as wind whips drifts form and when those drifts melt this puddle forms. so he has been farming this 0.8 acres which if anybody is familiar uh, with the swamp buster act that Mm. is in place for all wetland determined areas that he is not eligible for farm programs is not eligible for crop insurance if those areas are farmed so now this farmer may potentially uh, have an issue with the number of years since 2011 when the determination was made Uh, I'm sorry, it was made in 2008. He first challenged it in 2011. But if he has farmed that piece of 0.8 acres since then, uh, he could have to pay back any uh, compensation that he received from those government programs. So if he gets a disaster payment and qualified according to his standards on that 0.8 acres, uh, he would have to return that. So just a reminder to our listeners, if you do have land that is determined as wetlands and you have been farming it to get extra acres to leave those out of your crop reporting for government programs. I'm just still hung up on the Swamp Busters Act, that that's the name of a act. Oh yeah, that's uh, that act has been in place for quite a while. Uh, I've yes, never heard of it until today. There you go. Yes, stay out of it. Don't plant through a swamp. I just learned something new, Tanner. 
<laughs> that's the last piece I got. So that's the last thing you can learn from me today. Well, speaking of planting, Canadian farmers have planted about 25 and a half million acres of wheat this year, which is up about half a million acres from their forecast in April and two per, two million acres more than last year, which is according to Statistics Canada. Uh, spring wheat acres are up pretty significantly as well as Canadian canola, which is at 21.2 million acres, only up about 500,000 acres from their spring intentions. Um, but actually down slightly from last year. All in all, they're focusing primarily on wheat tanner because of some of the uh, shifting geopolitical issues that we see right now with Australia having some weather issues. Of course, Russia, Ukraine having all of their debacle and, um, you know, some potential wheat acres shifting here in the United States. So not sure that we're going to see a wheat shortage this year, but that's still kind of the the question mark right now. Right. That is certainly uh, what grabbed headlines early, at least when people were uh, reviewing the Russian-Ukraine issue. But uh, all we can ask for now is for those that are harvesting wheat to continue to do the best job that they can and get themselves set up for next year. Yeah. Speaking of next year and, and the markets are certainly beginning to Pay attention to other news. It sounds like a lot of brokers, commodity brokers have been uh, sharing in their newsletter this week, Tanner, that the Russia-Ukraine story is pretty much traded out for now. And until we see anything major happening with maybe lack of harvest or lack of production for now, the markets have said uh, that they're focusing on other things, which happen to, of course, be weather. And even with some of the weather that we got yesterday with rainfall in some key areas, Markets are trading higher this morning heading into the opening session. December corn is up about four and a half cents at 583. November soybeans up about 21 cents this morning at 1337. And it's also interesting to note, Tanner, that yesterday, for the first time ever, uh, since the February crop insurance price had been set, corn and soybeans both closed lower yesterday than the February insurance um, number. So corn closed yesterday at 578. February insurance is at 590. So we're still trading lower this morning than the February insurance state or insurance number. And soybeans yesterday closed at 1320. February insurance was set at 1433. So still seeing some significantly lower numbers this morning as we head into the opening session. Wheat is higher across the board as well. And as you look at the livestock markets, Tanner, they are seeing some red on the screen with live cattle and feeder cattle both trading lower in the overnight and lean hogs trending higher. There you go. Appreciate you reporting the markets. Let's jump into our conversation for today. Good morning, Ag News Daily listeners. This is Cassidy alongside Tanner Winterhoff, and we are excited to introduce and welcome a fellow podcaster, stock dog trainer, Jackie Tinker, to join us this morning. How are you, Jackie? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for joining us. And we are so excited to hear a little bit about your role in the ag industry, because it's a very unique perspective that we don't get to hear much about. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into this side of the industry and what you do on a daily basis? 
Sure. Sure. I uh, actually started uh, learning about training stock dogs, working stock dogs when I was 14. Um, I took a break after that. I was given an Australian Shepherd by a great friend and rancher that I met when I was 14. And that kind of started my passion for the Australian Shepherd, the working side of the Australian Shepherd breed. Um, fast forward to where I'm at now, I have a small place, a small ranch in uh, central Texas, and it's kind of all because of that first dog. Getting, I've always loved uh, agriculture and raising animals and being around animals. I was raised in a hog operation in Minnesota, and um, so I've always been around that. And using the dogs is a great way to uh, expand your ability as a rancher and farmer. So we currently have a small operation here in, in Texas, and I have raised registered sheep, uh, goats, and we have cattle here as well. Most of what I do in the ag industry outside of raising uh, the animals is uh, training working dogs for ranchers and for people who want to trial their dogs. So we do – where I'm at now, we're doing rotational grazing, and – um, that's where we move our animals every day to a new location so we control where they're grazing. We can control how much is grazed every day and kind of manage our pastures. That way we can have larger stocking numbers and um, be better um, stewards of, of, of our, the land that we have. And so I use my dogs every day. They take the animals out and they bring them back every uh, day. I use livestock guardian dogs as well. I pull my my sheep uh I don't pull my cows up every day but I pull my sheep up every day we have a high predator load and it also just gives me a way to um check on my stock and also I usually am training uh in the morning so the stock doesn't go out until after we're done training dogs so I'll train dogs I have um clinics and classes here camps for people who want to learn how to train their dogs and I help um people do that um, so my dogs work twice a day. They bring stock uh, out to the grazing locations and it's, you know, it's all over the ranch. So we go, you know, pretty far some days. And then at night we bring them back up again. We do sorting. We sort of animals. I use my dogs to sort load trailers, um, doing a lot of pen work. And, you know, when I have to tag or vaccinate or do anything I need to do with animals, the dogs are always involved. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of a picture of what we do on a daily basis. Wow. I was really looking forward to this conversation just for the sheer fact that we've talked to a lot of people that, you know, discuss the unemployment levels and, you know, the, the struggle to find help with experience or those mm -hmm. that stick along long enough for training to really put two and two together. Do you feel like your dogs, as you put them to work, uh, are more effective than having extra hired hands around? <laughs> it is a huge problem. Um, I just lost a hired hand too because, you know, they just don't always stick with you. And uh, my dogs, yes, I, I can load trailers by myself. I can load cattle into a trailer by myself with me and the dog. And I can bring my stock anywhere I need them to do. So, you know, if they had opposable thumbs, they could help me with fencing. But, you know, they can't do that. But they do They do so much for me. I can vaccinate, uh, tag, take care of everything with the shoot system that I have and just the dogs moving them. And, you know, it's cool. So one thing that we do, I have a little shoot system. And my stock, maybe I'll back up a little bit, but my stock are dog broke. So they're, they're used to working with dogs. So they are much calmer than your average uh, sheep and cattle. Um, when you dog break them or when you work them with dogs, they become much calmer and safer animals. So in that way, you need less hands as well. Um, but my shoot system, my dog will, there's a pin that starts the shoot, then there's the shoot, and then there's the area where I work them. And so then the dog will just lay down. And when I need a few more 
sheep down the chute or cattle or whatever. I'll say, hey, walk up, bring me a few more. And then he'll, he'll see the chute is full and he lays down. He's been doing it so long that he just knows instinctively or experientially what we need done. And he'll wait there until the chute is empty. And I'll say, hey, I need some more. And he'll bring me some more and I'll work them and send them out. And um, if anything gets away, I don't have to worry about it because he can just go get them. I don't have to worry about running down my four-wheeler or anything else to try and gather up stuff that runs off. So, yeah, I think they can take the place of a, a person pretty in certain ways for sure. That is really amazing, Jackie. And I think that's something that a lot of people may be looking into with this labor crisis. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, y'all also do a lot of competitions. So are there any recent competitions that you've gone to or some that are coming up that you're excited about? Well, we have our, we qualified for the finals this year. So um, my main dog, Copper, is my main trial dog. And he's also my main, main man around the place. Um, I've got a couple of his kids coming up that are going to help when he gets to retire, but we're going to finals this year. Um, so that's going to be, that's in November. I'm really excited about that. He's um, earned his stock dog championship with, I trial mostly in the Australian shepherd club. Um, and that's their highest uh, title that you can get in stock. There's not really anything else you can do except for finals. So, and he did that in a very short period of time. He's a great, he's really a special dog, but um We've been doing all all spring. Everything pretty much for me shuts down the summer because it's too hot to do a lot of that extra stuff. <laughs> so when you talk about competition, what for our listeners who aren't familiar with what that competition looks like, what what does the dog have to do? Well, in ASCA, we do uh, arena courses mostly. We have a few field competitions that you can go into, which are in bigger areas. Um, basically, they set up panels. We have specific specified courses. Other areas of competition you can go to where they have random courses that are, you don't know what they're going to be until you show up there. In ASCA, they have specified courses. I think there's 10 of them. And uh, they have panels set up in different configurations. And the dog has to take the stock um, around the course. And um, there's expectations of behavior and management control. ASCA is a judged course, so it's not based on just your time and your points. It's based on what the judge likes about your runs and stuff like that. They'll have freestanding pens. They'll have where you open the gate. The dog has to put the cows or the sheep, or we use also have to trial on ducks inside of a freestanding pen and um, take them out, run them around these different panels. We have a couple, uh, one small outrun course. We have a field course that has to be done in a minimum of six acres, and that one also has specified panels that you take them around, but it's in a bigger, much bigger area. That's a an advanced, very advanced class. That, that's interesting. And then I, I wanted to go back to, you mentioned that your stock, your livestock is dog trained. So what, mm -hmm. what does that mean to the listeners? That is something I think that it cannot be um, expressed greatly enough. What a huge difference it means to work dog broke or dog trained stock. It's uh, safer. The animals become, they learn to trust the dog. The dog teaches them. If a dog is fair and dog breaks them fairly, I mean, we use the word break. It's like breaking a horse kind of thing. But if the dog trains the stock fairly, that when the dog puts pressure on, the stock moves away. And if the dog, the stock moves away, the dog releases that pressure, then the stock learn to trust that dog, that he's not a predator, that he's uh, trustworthy. He's not going to get after them or punish them unless they do something that they're not supposed to do. So they, they learn to trust the dog and they aren't afraid of the dog, but they understand that if uh, they don't listen to what the dog says, there will be consequences, which are, you know, like a nip or something like that or increased pressure. 
the stock is so much easier to work with humans. I can walk in amongst all my sheep and I can, some of them um, I can touch and handle without a shoot system just because they've become so, um, well, mine are used for training. So they're more dog broke than anything, than the average person. Uh, they're just easier. They're safer to be around cattle that are calm and um, can understand that there's no chaos involved are so much safer than if they're just wild off the range. And I, and they know when the dog puts them in a pen that they need to go in that pen and that it's safe. They, they have a really interesting relationship with each other and it just calms the cows down in a large operation. Oftentimes people that use dogs will dog break their replacement heifers because they can't go in and, and dog break a thousand head of cows very easily. So they'll just dog break their replacement heifers. And as they, you know, eventually will end up with a full uh, herd of cattle that are dog broke right. and calm. And that when they see the dog coming, they know they have to do something. So I don't know if that explains it very well or not. It did. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I think, think it's great. very, it's comparable, but even better to having your cattle broke to be around horses and react mm-hmm. well to them instead of running off. And it's probably, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And probably even more useful because like you said, even more gentle and even more uh, easy to move off the dog and move off the human and everything. Yes. And one thing I tell ranchers that come out here and like um, a lot of ranchers are used to driving. They drive their cattle. They'll go on their horses, their four wheelers or whatever. They'll get behind and they'll drive them. And so with most working dogs, that's actually the opposite instinct that the working dog has. The working dog has the instinct to go around and gather the stock and bring them to you. It's fetching. And a lot of ranchers don't understand that. And they get frustrated with the dogs because they're like, oh, they're just trying to bring them back to me. And they're just running the heads and turning the heads to me. And well, that's their instinct. And so my question is, and you can't do this on like, you know, sections sometimes, you know, you're not gonna be able to do it in large, large areas this way. Um, I have a lot of people that have Aussies in our community that work on huge ranches, but, um, you know, in a smaller or a, a pasture that's gatherable by a dog, would you rather just stand at the gate, open the gate, send the dog to go get the cows? Or did you want to go gather them up yourself on the four and get behind and bring them back? It's much easier for me to open the gate and say, look back and have the dog go find the cows and bring them up to me. So that's something to think about that changes the paradigm a little bit. And Jackie, do you breed as well? Do you have litters for sale every now and then? Uh, not very often. I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself a, a big breeder. Um, I'll have litters not every couple of years usually when I want to replace something or if I see a really good dog I want to use or uh, I find a good match for a dog that I have. Mm-hmm. So when somebody is interested in potentially learning how to train dogs like this, are there resources available? What, what advice do you have for somebody who might be interested in the training side? Yeah, so find a trainer. We have trainers in Australian Shepherd trainers, um, and, and Australian Shepherds are my breed, uh, but there are Border Collies that are really another breed that really um, is popular with uh, ranchers and, and people who want to use uh, dogs on their place. Find a – so whatever breed you have, find a trainer nearby that can train or can do what you want the dog to do. So think about if you're a rancher and you're not interested in trialing, you're just interested in having a good hand around the place – Go find somebody that's actually doing that so you can actually visualize how to use a dog um, on your place. Because a lot of people just don't understand what they can do with the dog. They may be limited by experience and understanding that you can ask a lot of these dogs. These dogs can do a lot. Um, my dog can sort out – I have a video of him sorting a chicken out of a pen of ducks. So he had 150 <laughs> ducks and one chicken, and he moved the chicken out. He, he moves the goats out of the sheep 
he can, he can sort the goats out in the pasture. Like we don't have to, they're all together and I just want the goats. I can give him some commands and, and he understands, oh, we're just going for the goats and he'll bring the goats out by themselves. They can do so many things you can't even comprehend until you start working with them and trying that. So if you're a beginner, go find somebody that's using a dog on a ranch and get some videos. We have a Facebook group called uh, Working Aussie Source. There's a website called WorkingAussieSource.com. We have litters of, um, herding lines, uh, bred puppies and, and dogs that we've kind of vetted to make sure that they're going to put out the best genetics on that site for people to, to access. We have lots of articles and there's a list of trainers all over the country. So kind of just get involved and start learning about what you want to do and make sure number one, if you're thinking about getting a dog and if it's not a trained dog already, you're getting a puppy, go see the parents of that puppy work, make sure they are 100% working dogs. In whatever breed you get, Border Collies or Aussies or Kelpies or whatever, go make sure you see the dogs, the parents doing the kind of work you want them to do because there's a lot of people out there that will does, don't have the same definition of work as everyone else. <laughs> and so. what are your personal resources, Jackie? I know you have your own podcast and website and everything else. Mm-hmm. What would you like to share with our listeners to find you? Well, I have a podcast called The Instinctive Australian Shepherd. We do a lot of talking about the breed and working. Um, we do some non-working podcasts as well to kind of involve the entire Australian Shepherd world. But um, So The Instinctive Aussie can be found wherever you find your favorite podcast. My personal dog training website is stockdogtrainer.com, and that's where I put on clinics, um, camps, and um, lessons for training people and training their dogs. Awesome. Well, this has been a great conversation. I love watching those random competitions when I get on mm-hmm. the TV and see them either racing or herding, you know, whichever it looks like. Uh, they're very entertaining and I'm always envious. So thank you for taking your time to jump on the Ag News Daily Podcast. And we really appreciate it. Hey, you're welcome. It was a great conversation. Well, Delaney, do you have a dog? I do, but never a dog that has been that talented. <laughs> I'm the same, the same way. Uh, I did feel for all dogs here as 4th of July just went across. I'm sure many of them were cowering just like mine was, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, another good interview to share with our guests. Yeah, that's it brings me back, Tanner, to a couple of years ago when I was in Ireland. They did a sheepdog training or practice i suppose you could say it's certainly interesting to see what they can do absolutely but our listeners have now seen what we can do and i say for today it's time to let them go so what do you say delaney should we let the people go let's let them go (laughs) 